continue studying together from this last letter of the Apostle Paul. And when I knew that I would be uh, preaching this Sunday and I knew that this was going to be the passage and that it was a passage that focuses on suffering and hardship, I thought that is going to be challenging for all kinds of reasons. In some ways, and I include myself for sure, preaching to an American Western suburban church on the theme of embracing hardship is a little bit like extolling the nutritional benefits of kale at a hot dog eating contest. <laughs> Not long ago I was on the way to work and I was listening to the NPR uh, news and they were promoting a new podcast that they had and the point of this podcast was so that you could get all the news that you needed in about, I don't know, five minutes or ten minutes, so. But they did the podcast because of the difficulties that we face just day by day and morning by morning. And then they listed the difficulties. you got to get up. You've got to get dressed. You've got to get your breakfast. And I thought, my goodness, is that the new, is that the new definition? That's hardship, rising from bed, feeding yourself, and putting some clothes on. And will this be one of the ways that the world squeezes us into its mold, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, with our own deep devotion to comfort and personal preference? I've read that the great evangelist D.L. Moody would never let them sing the song Onward Christian Soldiers at his meetings because even back then he thought that the church of his day was nothing like an army fighting the good fight. Turn with me though to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning at the beginning of the chapter where we've already studied, where Paul reminds Timothy of his calling, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable, faithful people who will also be qualified to teach others. But Paul knows from his own experience what that is going to involve. And so he says, join with me in suffering, Timothy, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's the metaphor. That's the function, the role, the person that he focuses on to describe what it's like to do what Timothy is supposed to do in faithful ministry and service. And then he spells it out, what being a good soldier means, and that's what we'll be thinking about. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete, so he switches the metaphor, but same basic ideas. 
doesn't receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And then a third illustration. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, Paul says, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. And that's what we want. We want insight into why Paul would talk about being a Christian and being a Christian minister in terms of being a soldier. And I've never served in the military and I've watched the movies and I've read some of the books and the articles and some much more serious and substantial than others. But even through those imperfect sources, we get a pretty good sense of the difficulty and the challenge and the demand that comes with being a soldier. And you who experienced it, you who've had loved ones close to it, you can especially resonate with what Paul must have in mind. Because this part of the Bible, as all the individual parts of the Bible, fits in as a part of the whole big entire story. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to miss what the big narrative, what the entire story is all about. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that the Bible's big story could well be described as two kingdoms in conflict, in a continuing war and struggle that starts with the fall, the rebellion in Genesis 3, and isn't finished until the events described in the book of Revelation. There is all along a war that goes on. It's a war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's the way it's first described. So Cain, seed of the serpent, rises up and slays Abel, the daughter of Eve, the seed of the woman, from which one day mysteriously it's prophesied a final Savior King is going to come. It continues, and we don't have time to sketch it out, but it continues throughout the entire Old Testament. It continues to the time of Jesus' arrival. And Herod is on the scene. And what is Herod's name and title? King of the Jews. He's the king in the seed of the serpent line. But a baby is born. Magi show up and say, where is this one who was born? What? King of the Jews. Now... The seed of the woman, the rightful heir, the rightful ruler shows up in this world that Jesus himself says lies in the lap of the wicked one, where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. And how does King Herod respond to the news that the king of the Jews has been born? Slaughter. He judges the age at which the birth probably takes place, and all the born, babies born in the Bethlehem area that might be that rival king are killed. That's a real war that is going on. And the Bible talks about this spiritual warfare 
that we're in. It continues as Jesus' ministry begins. After John was put in prison, Mark 1, 14, and who put John in prison? King Herod. John is the herald, is the uh, announcer of the arrival of the rightful king. John, under Herod, ends up in prison, and we know where that eventually goes. But it says, after John was put in prison, that was Herod's move, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, which is this, the time has come, the kingdom of God, the reassertion of the reign of God, the rightful ruler, has come near, Jesus said. What's the right response to that news? Switch sides. Change your allegiance. Repent and believe in this good news. Paul will later write of his own ministry in this striking way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. But he's saying, we do wage war. That's how militaristic he's willing to talk. We wage war. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world, of the flesh, but they have divine power to demolish, to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God And we capture, we take captive, that's warfare language again, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so, according to the New Testament, and I don't normally think in these terms either, it's a stretch for me as I slog through this passage just to really Try to let my mind be transformed, my perspective to be transformed. We are in a war, an ongoing battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It is a spiritual warfare. Christians and Christ's church are continually at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil Whether we like it or not, there's no opting out, not legitimately anyway. And the battle will continue until the Lord's final triumph. We do know that, that the cross, Good Friday, was kind of D-Day. It was the decisive victory, especially with the resurrection that followed. But the battle, the war, continues. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And then in the book of Acts, James, Stephen... Others are martyred, and Saul ravages the church until he's conquered by Christ. And the to and fro of the battle continues in the book of Acts. But we do know where it's headed, Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
But all of this, this idea that we're really at war is a crucial part of the worldview of the Apostle Paul, the way he looks at life, the way he processes his day-by-day living and his calling. And he wants Timothy, because Paul knows he's passing off the sea, because another descendant of the serpent is about to have him executed. Now Timothy has to continue on. And so Paul lovingly, realistically says to his young son and partner in the faith and ministry, it's going to be your turn, Timothy. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Compare what Paul had written to Timothy in his first letter. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the good fight. Sometimes that phrase in the Bible is more about kind of hand-to-hand grappling or combat. This means that you might war the good warfare. That you might be a good soldier in Christ's army. And even when I say phrases like that, it almost has me back in some camp and I'm in the Lord's army and it's you know just kind of a playful, harmless thing. But it's not as Paul describes it here. It was the Lord Jesus himself who had taught the disciples what was really going on behind all of this. Do you remember that the Lord Jesus himself put them on notice in John chapter 15? If the world hates you, keep in mind what does Jesus says? That it hated me first. You know, there's really kind of the myth out there that, well, I don't think much about the church, but I really admire Jesus. You know, that the world, that's kind of the mode that they're in. Well, it wasn't actually the mode that they were in when he was here. Again, a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus that we imagine, that's one thing. But Jesus as he really was, he himself says, the world, including strikingly the religious establishment of the world, within the covenant professing people of God. The world hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you. One of our own. As it is, you, disciples, do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. That's why, ultimately, culturally, again and again, in a way, no matter how winsome we try to be, and sometimes we're not very good at all at being winsome, but even when Christians have done their best, they can still encounter this deep-seated hostility. We've got to get real about that. We've got to realize what's going on. There is in the human heart and rebellion against God this inborn hostility to God and to the good. And if you show up and start looking and sounding like one of his, 
You're going to engender, you're going to encounter that same kind of hostility. Remember what I told you, Jesus says, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, Jesus says. For they do not know the one who sent me. And the pivotal sermon of Jesus that was read for us. The Beatitudes end in this maybe kind of surprising way. Because he's talked about the poor in spirit and the meek and the humble. You'd think those would be kind of winsome qualities. But how does it end? What has he set his disciples up for? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this is the one he, only, he expands and elaborates on. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. It's because of Jesus that it happens. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets. The authentic spokesman for God came to the people of God, the professing people of God, and spoke his truth, and they got persecuted. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus gives some beatitudes, he also pronounces some woes, and one of them is, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how they treated, he says, the false prophets. So here's the key question. And to be honest, this is going to be one of those mornings, one of those messages where I'm going to lay some things out, but you really will need to do the work of kind of customizing the application to yourself, which we always should do in response to preaching. But here's my question that came to me while I was getting this message ready. If we're not experiencing the world in the way that Jesus himself did, and in the way in which his disciples would in the book of Acts, why do you think that is? It seems to me that it could be that it's because we're kind of AWOL, absent without leave. We're not really showing up. We're not really speaking and standing for Jesus as the rightful Lord, as the only Savior in a way that would cause the conflict. Maybe it's that we little by little mostly unintentionally, have withdrawn from the world in the wrong way too much. We end up in kind of our spiritual ghettos, in our kind of sacred gated communities. And mostly the only people we deal with very substantially are fellow Christians. And there aren't really meaningful interactions with unbelievers so that worldviews and fundamental beliefs really could ever clash. 
Has the church retreated too much from the public square? Not primarily for political reasons, but to keep saying Jesus is Lord and calling people to repentance in light of that. I happened to be in the chapel while they were just about ready to start with their music rehearsal this morning. And Luke, as he was praying with the music team, uh, musicians, he said that we become more of a cruise ship than a warship. So it really is crucial that we let God's word lead us away from being conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the renewing of our outlook, including as what it really means to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. First, again, for that even to be a halfway plausible way of characterizing us. And so, verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. If you were a civilian, that would be fine. But you're not a civilian. You're a soldier. Some things entirely appropriate for civilians, for them to be enamored with and involved in, not appropriate for the soldier, Paul is saying. Because he wants to please his commanding officer. Or as one translation puts it, he must be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. That's the faithful Christian. It's clear that for the Christian, for the church, our commanding officer is the Lord Jesus. And he has given us a very specific commission. That's a military term. I looked it up. It means an instruction, command, or duty given to a person or group to be officially charged with a particular function. Are we under a commission? We talk about, we're under the great one, right? We're under the great commission. And we're not to get entangled and encumbered by worldly things that take our toll on our kingdom service carrying out that great commission. The commission, as we'll see, to make disciples... Go and make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them. That will be the initiation ceremony that they're joining with Christ and his army. And right away, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That is our commission as the church, as the Lord's army. Make disciples. But to do that... We can't get unduly entangled. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 elaborates on that and again ways that I'm like, it's just there are certain passages which apparently we sort of unofficially filter out because I almost never hear anyone referring to this passage. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. What's short? The time before everlasting judgment. 
The time before every person stands before the Lord Jesus for judgment that will mean either eternal blessedness and happiness in heaven or everlasting misery in hell. The time is short because of the lifespan of people, but the time is short because of the prospect of his coming as well. That's the mindset. That's part of it again. Because that's true, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now again, this is Paul talking under inspiration. There are some of it that we're not going to like. And we're like, what in the world does that mean? And there's true that he says some other things, other places that need to be filtered in. But let's not again make the mistake of trying to explain a passage by fundamentally trying to explain it away. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is on the way out. It's passing away. And if we just get faked out and all enamored and all entangled. <clears throat> now again, there are other passages that talk about that we can really enjoy the good things that God gives us. So somehow every one of us has to learn how to navigate the distinction between enjoyment and entanglement. And I can't do that for you and you can't do that for me, but we're both responsible to do that if we're going to be good soldiers of Christ. John Piper has shared some key insights on what it means to live and he actually uses the term with a wartime mentality reflecting what we're talking about. A wartime lifestyle is rooted in the view of the world as created by God and intended by him to be subdued as Genesis 1 says. And then he quotes from 1 Timothy 4, where the good things from God's creation are to be enjoyed. However, a wartime lifestyle is rooted in the biblical conviction that since the fall of the world into sin, futility, and corruption, a war has been going on, one of the most serious kind between God and Satan, between God's purposes of redemption and Satan's purposes of destruction. And so... How are we going to live in that kind of world and in that kind of situation? In a world wartime lifestyle, you always ask yourself, how can my life count to advance the cause of Christ? And God's people, in a prosperous land like America, simply cannot live as though there were not thousands of unreached people groups who are still under enemy control. It just doesn't fit with the situation that we're actually in. And so if we're not deliberate and intentional about our Christian living and serving, we'll almost certainly keep drifting back into distraction, ending up entangled. Like Jesus described in his parable in the sower, those where the word fell among the thorns, 
Those are the ones who hear the gospel, who hear the word of God, but as they go on their way, as they live their life, that word is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of the world, and their fruit doesn't mature. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And, it, and we know who set the trap. And into the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered little by little, step by step from faith. And pierce themselves with many griefs. And so we need to be mindful that we can get entangled. That we can wander, that we can drift, and we can get distracted. People can, ministers can, so can ministries and churches. Our own church mission statement is to glorify the God of heaven by... Making disciples here on earth. Specifically, that means the ministries that evangelize and edify by proclaiming, presenting, explaining the gospel and the word of God. That's the only way that someone really gets saved, evangelized. That's the only means and method available to us by which any Christian really grows. The Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word of God. Teaching, preaching, explaining the Bible, the Gospel, the Bible. That's our mission. Preaching and teaching Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Because we know that this is what it's going to take. God is going to have to say, let there be light in any person's heart if they're ever going to be able to turn from the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4. That's carrying out the Great Commission. Make disciples first by evangelizing, explaining the gospel that Jesus is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day as the Lord of everybody everywhere who now calls you to repent and believe the good news. And we have to be witnessing and explaining and lovingly praying and just gospelizing people in every way that we can. That's the first phase of making a disciple. Then once they make that initial commitment... You baptize and receive them into the fellowship and then you just start teaching them the word of God. Now this is what it is to live for the glory of Christ. Gospelizing, evangelizing, then edifying. That's our mission. When people come into contact with us here at South, what do they experience? What do they receive? I'm talking about all ages. I'm talking about all kinds of settings. Do they... I was at South. I was with a South event. I was at a South. And what I heard was Jesus. I heard about him some more. 
I heard about how he's the Savior from sin. I heard about how he's the Lord of all. I heard about what it means to rightly respond in repentance and faith and start to follow him. Every time I connect it south, it seems to always go back one way or another to the good news about Jesus. Or they teach the Bible about what it means to live for his glory in every aspect of life. Mission creep can set in when it comes to the army of God. And we can start making mistakes when it comes to what our mission really is. The church of Jesus Christ has not been commissioned to be a source of entertainment for people. They can find that a million different places, a million other sources. The church isn't a social club or a community theater or a concert venue. The church is not carrying out its authentic mission if it's acting as a self-help group or a political action committee disconnected from the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ, the centrality of the gospel, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. The church, as Paul puts it to Timothy, is the Lord's army for carrying out his disciple-making, disciple-developing commission in the midst of this world that's in rebellion against its true and rightful king. Here in 2 Timothy, the metaphor is soldiers. Other places, the metaphor is servants, literally slaves. But in both cases, the metaphors mean we are to live and serve in submission to him. I'm running out of time, so I have to go fast. As we do that, we've got to compete according to the rules like an athlete. Paul says in his next analogy, the rules of ministry I've already alluded to, by the word of God, in the power of the spirit of God, the flesh profits zilch, nothing. The words I've spoken, Jesus said, are spirit and are life. And we're to do things by the book in the life of the church. I'm writing you these things, 1 Timothy 3, so that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God. There's really no point in claiming that Christ is the head of the church if, with, if in practice we actually make decisions in our meetings and in our administrating, ignoring the means by which he actually governs and guides, which is this. If instead we follow man-made authority, including what is preferred by human leaders or popular with people. We're no longer playing according to the rules for carrying out our commission. We're being insubordinate and not good soldiers of Christ Jesus. The third illustration, hard-working farmer. Faithful ministry will be hard work. Reflect on these things, Paul says. There's just so much more to say that can't be said. 35 minutes just isn't enough time. There's so much to say about the persecuted church today. There's so much to say about ministries of compassion and mercy that adorn the gospel, drawing alongside it, making it attractive. Our focus this morning has been the central work that Timothy was called to do as a preacher of the gospel. But let me say a few things quickly by way of application. First of all, this kind of radical devotion to Christ described here 
once again, this kind of radical devotion to his mission and carrying out his great commission is not elite, optional, or legalistic. It's real Christianity. Go sometime this Lord's Day to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 38, and be reminded again. Jesus in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Our Christian faith is to be at the heart of what our lives are all about. I know that there are people here who are living out what Paul describes to Timothy. And your central allegiance and commitment is to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. And your great desire is to do it according to his word and according to his will. There is, remember, that great reward, likely a minority, a remnant, great reward ahead for you. As we close, there's a wonderful old hymn from Isaac Watts that applies these truths very well, beginning with some key questions that begin the song. Some of you know it. The last two verses I had never heard before. Don't let it sound sentimental or trite, just because it rhymes. Am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush? To speak his name. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this world all of a sudden a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, of course. I must fight if I would reign, so increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Then this, thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith discerning eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. Father, I pray that you will help us live this day in light of that day. In Christ's name. Amen.